Today's reading is Acts 2, 1 through 13. When Pentecost Day arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound from heaven, like the howling of a fierce wind, filled the entire house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be individual flames of fire alighting on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them to speak. There were pious Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. When they heard this sound, a crowd gathered. They were mystified because everyone heard them speaking in their native languages. They were surprised and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all the people who are speaking Galileans, every one of them? How then can each of us hear them speaking in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, as well as residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the regions of Libya bordering Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the mighty works of God in our own languages. They were all surprised and bewildered. Some asked each other, what does this mean? Others jeered at them saying, you're full of new wine. Well, today is Pentecost Sunday. And uh, as we've heard already, uh, this is the day when we celebrate God pouring out his Holy Spirit upon his church. And uh, we're going to do the talk a bit differently, so I'm going to do a bit, and then Daniel's coming, and then Will's doing a bit. That will lead us into communion. And uh, as I was thinking about this, this metaphor, it's a well-used one of the caterpillar, butterfly, and the transition that goes on there in the life cycle that takes place. You learned it as a child, the very hungry... Who read The Very Hungry Caterpillar as a child? Okay. So, all right, so you know the biology. And um, that's pure science, obviously, in that book. Uh, but it, it's this process that goes on, and people have often said down the years how that's a picture of the journey that Jesus takes us on as we walk with him, that he transforms us. But we also know that that is a lifelong process. None of us are fully there in this life. It, it's a journey that we go on. And I was thinking about that and uh, reflecting on the fact that God is amazing because God views us differently to how we view ourselves and to how we view other people. Because when God looks at us, um, he sees you not through the prism of your past, but through the picture of your potential. When God looks at us uh, and he thinks about who you are, he sees in your identity not a sinner, but rather a son or a daughter of the Most High God. When God looks at us as our destiny, he doesn't uh, see our destiny as controlled by uh, what's gone before, but he looks at our destiny as being controlled by what lies ahead out of eternity. God has this amazing way of viewing who we are. Uh, the Bible talks about us seeing him as our father, our Abba, our daddy, our papa. And he's someone who, when he comes into our life, he doesn't bring a drizzly, grey, dreary past, but rather he sees in you and in me this potential for this sun-coloured future that's got this amazing potential within it. And what happens is this. When we choose to follow Jesus, in other words, when we receive what Jesus has done for us on the cross, when Jesus died in our place on the cross, he took what we deserved 
the consequences of our sin, which is death and, and rejection from God. He took those things upon himself, and instead we receive what Jesus deserved to inherit, which is eternal life, which is fullness of life, which is not just forgiveness of sins, if that's not enough, but actually God frees us to enter fully into who we were meant to be. The dream, the glint that God our Father had in his eyes when you dreamt you and me up, that's who he sees. And by receiving that by faith, through what Jesus has done for us on the cross, we have this amazing future that starts to open up before us. We stop being trapped in caterpillar land and we get to move into butterfly land. And God changes us that way. And, um, uh, you know, when I think about this, it, you see how God uh, reorientates uh, not only how um, he views me, but I see then as a result, I get to change how I see other people. And that comes out of understanding how the Father sees me. Let me explain it like this to you. You know, God doesn't see people as we see people. Uh, when we mess up uh, and do stuff wrong, one of, the, you know, one of the reasons we mess up communities is because we see people uh, through their caterpillar messes, and that's all we can focus on. Oh, you're a caterpillar, and you leave mess and goo, and you're just a big furball and everywhere. By the way, do you know the etymology of the word caterpillar literally means hairy cat? And they think it comes from fur balls that cats vomit, uh, vomit up everywhere. So I just thought I'd give that with you. Uh, so if you said you want to be a caterpillar, you might need to change your mind on that. But God does, what happens is we view people through the fur balls that they cough up in life. Whereas God views people by their butterfly potential. And when we recognize that God is our father, our Abba father, we then start to see, uh, as we feel the security from that, we then have the ability to start to see other people differently. So here's an example of that. You know, we see someone as a sinner, the Father sees someone as a saint. We see an old man and his barren wife, ancient in years, desperate for a child. The Father sees Abraham and Sarah, who are going to be the father and mother of faith, who are going to have so many offspring that God says, go out into the night sky and look up all, at all the stars. You will have more children and descendants than that. Or another example would be we see a scrawny lad who's out, uh, he's the youngest of eight boys, he's out doing the menial fun laboring jobs. Who's he ever going to be? And God the Father sees someone who's a fierce warrior with a passionate worshipper's heart and his name is David. He goes on to rule the nation but also he writes half of the book of Psalms, the songs of worship. Or maybe we see a young woman who's a Moabite from the enemy nation who has absolutely no resources or assets to her name. Who is she? And yet the father sees Ruth, and Ruth is the woman who is full of grace and integrity, a person beautiful on the inside and the outside, and she becomes the great-grandmother of David, but more importantly, she becomes in the genealogy, the ancestry of Jesus Christ. Or maybe we see regular, ordinary fishermen who you would never pick from the lineup to be part of your team, partly because they smell, because they're fishermen. And that's who they are. And yet God the Father sees Peter and Andrew and James and John, and they become these radical pioneer fishers of people who plant the original church from which every other church has descended. You see, this is how God views us. He views us through the prism of our potential. In the book of Romans, it says this verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 15 on the screen. And uh, it's wonderful words. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. 
You know, at the cross, we are adopted into God's family. We can call him Abba Father. And that's because he approves of us. He loves us. He thinks we're just tremendous because God views us through the picture of who we could become. He's not stuck thinking about us because of our sins and the mess and the stuff we've done wrong. But he, you know, he knows we're going to fall short. He knows we're going to mess up on our day-to-day life. But nevertheless, his big picture is focused on who we can become in Jesus as children of the Most High God. So let's choose not to live like orphans, living in caterpillar land, anxious and distrustful and insecure. And no wonder it's difficult to have great relationships when we operate like that. But we need to choose to live like people who are children of our Father in heaven, our heavenly Father. And how he sees me is the platform for which I can then view other people. I can live differently, resourced and empowered by his Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit is the one who reveals to us that we can cry, Abba, Father. We can come intimately into God's presence at any time and in any place. And the Holy Spirit empowers me to to so love others that I can help them establish and grow in their relationship with Abba Father to form amazing families and friendships and communities. So the starting place, I think, for us forming great community is that we are grounded in who we are in Christ, that we have a heavenly Father who loves us and cares for us. He sees all our butterfly potential, even though we still mess up along the way, but he calls us forward. And out of that, we can then call that out on other people. And we're resourced to do that. And we can think and live differently. We can see all the wonderful, glorious, rich potential that's around us. And that's an amazing framework then for living in community. So what I want you to do is turn back to the person you spoke to at the beginning. I want you to look them in the eye. And as Daniel uh, comes up, I want you to look at that person and say to them, Abba Father says you're a butterfly. So do that now. Declare it over them with faith. Beautiful butterflies. Good morning. So thinking about that image that, that Alex kind of gave to us, that we have been adopted into this family, that God is our Abba Father, and that we've experienced his love, and God has said, no, you, you are my child. And then we are then children of God. We are a part of this new family. And I see, as I think about the Acts 2 passage... I'm really struck with some of the ways that it kind of gives us of being together, how the Spirit actually makes it possible for us to be in community, um, to be in relationship to one another, and what that might look like. Um, so in Acts 2, you have this crazy image at the beginning, right, where it's like this wind comes in, and it's like tongues of fire kind of rest on the people, and they begin to speak in different languages. It's almost this picture of that's hard for me to imagine what that would actually be like. Um, I haven't had that experience personally, and some of you may have, but I, it's hard for me to, to imagine what um, that would be like. And so then after this happens, there's a sermon that's preached, and people give their lives to Christ, and they, they receive the life that Jesus offers And as the the chapter continues, it kind of moves into this picture of then how the people of God in this time begin to live life together. So I'm just going to read real briefly from Acts 2, starting in verse 42. And it says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, they being this, this 
community of Christians, um, but the Spirit has come upon them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's a crazy way to end this chapter that began with something so extravagant. And then it moves into this, 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 this thing that we can actually maybe experience or we have experienced that, that seems so commonplace. People giving to one another as they had needs. People having possessions, selling them, and then giving things away. People attending the temple together day by day, breaking bread with one another and giving thanks to God and worshiping Him, and finding favor in all the world. This is something that I actually can imagine, and I've experienced this. And you need both, actually. The Spirit, which is crazy, makes both things possible, and makes both things meaningful. The miraculous, and the, the hard to imagine and explain, and yet the day-to-day ordinary life of actually being together. And this almost suggests to me that there is way more going on in our lives together than maybe we give it credit for. That perhaps the Spirit is way more involved in our community life than we acknowledge or attend to. That there's way more opportunity for us together to experience the power of the Spirit than maybe we often do. Mostly because we don't attribute what we experience to God's activity. And that's what's crazy. That as we come together, as we are prompted, as we see somebody in need, and our heart just can't help but break for that person, and we want to give of ourselves, of our things, to help, to provide, that's the Spirit of God. When we come together over a meal and we break bread in this way, but then also in every way, every day together, as we break bread and share a meal and we open ourselves up to one another and share our hearts over the table, that the Spirit of God is at work in that, that day-to-day ordinary activity that all of us do all the time. In those moments when we, when we experience this, this incredible, overwhelming sense of gratitude. When I'm with a friend and we're sharing conversation and I'm just so thankful. When I'm with my family, when I'm with my kids, and I can't explain it, there's just something there that I'm just overwhelmed with thanks. That's the Spirit of God at work. When we're together and we're raising our voices to worship God, when we're hearing the word read together, when we're sitting next to each other saying, this is the thing, God is the one who orients my life and makes sense of it, and I can't help but lift my voice to praise the God who does that, to praise what God has done in Jesus, that's the Spirit of God. 
all of these things that we do day to day, ordinary things that we call life, if we, by the grace and goodness of the Father, have been adopted into his family, then there's way more going on in our lives than we probably give God credit for. Because the Spirit is at work. The Spirit of God is at work among us. And we have the opportunity to be attentive to the way that the Spirit is at work. We have the opportunity to be attentive to those things that break our hearts among us, to those ways that we want to give, to those moments when we just can't do anything but but be grateful. We have an opportunity to be attentive to the Spirit and say, wow, God, thank you for blowing into our lives like a rushing wind. Thank you for adopting us as your children. It's not just an individual affair, but it's a family affair. We are a family. And the Spirit makes that possible. And then as we come together, and as we come together as a family, as a community made and formed by the Spirit, we have the opportunity to be used by the Spirit of God as a force of refreshing wind for the world. What a gift it is that we have to be children of God, to be the family of God, to be people who are empowered by the Spirit to bear witness to God. Now Will's going to come up and he's going to help us enter into this time in the table, but here's what I'd like you to do while he's coming up, is I'd like you to take out your bulletin and take out a pencil and hopefully it has some lead in it or it's not broken off and it's sharpened. And I'd like you to write, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to write down the name of somebody who perhaps God might be, or has been, might be right now, has put on your mind to, to, to say, you know what, I, I want to reach out to that person in love. In Galatians, Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Now, all of these different ways are the ways in which the Spirit wants to work through our lives toward other people. And it begins with love. So perhaps we need to engage and be attentive to the Spirit, and I think this is a way forward in that, is to think of somebody that comes to mind that the Spirit might be prompting you to move toward in love. And to move toward, maybe that means give them a call. Maybe that means share a meal with them. But write a name down and then be attentive to the spirit of what the next step might be that God is asking you to take so that we might encounter God's spirit at work among us. So go ahead and do that now. Um, Daniel just spoke about how the spirit of God is at work in the everyday life of our community. Actually, there's a depth to sharing life together that we aren't always aware of. I want to talk about one thing that we do together on a pretty regular basis, um, communion. Um, That communion is a practice that's actually central. It's vital to our lives together as a community. It's vital to our lives with God. Um, And we don't often realize how much that's true. I think um, communion is a little bit like an experience that I had in the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. Um, Uh, In the Yucatan 
Peninsula in Mexico is the world's longest known underground river. It stretches 95 miles beneath uh, the jungle. And you, um, this makes me sound like a very adventurous person. I'm not. We're like on this cheesy tour. Um, so you, you, enter this, you enter this cave, right? And it's hot outside, but the waters are cool. And there's uh, stalactites hanging down from the ceiling. If you don't know what a stalactite is, it's sort of like an icicle made of rock. Um, and if you don't know what an icicle is, because you're from Long Beach, <laughs> it's sort of like a stalactite made out of water. <laughs> um, uh, so, so you're in this underground cave, and, um, and, and it's like, almost like a swimming pool, and you're thinking, well, this is strange, this is different, but it's wonderful. And often I think um, that's sort of how communion is for us. We receive these sort of ordinary things, but in a different context. Bread and wine that represent the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. And you think, this is strange and different and wonderful. Um, But there is more to this cave uh, that I was in. Uh, Most of the water was shallow, but if you swam to a certain part of the cave, uh, you would come over this hole that dropped straight down 100 feet and then opened up to this vast network of tunnels that water was coursing through. And uh, it's hard to articulate what is different um, swimming over this 100-foot-deep hole, but your heart starts racing and you're sort of overwhelmed with mystery and fear of the unknown. What, what could be in the depths? It's like... Um, Suddenly, the extraordinary depth of the world is laid bare before you. And that's what communion is like. The extraordinary depth of our lives, the extraordinary depth of this community that God has put together, the extraordinary depth of our relationship with God is laid bare in the bread and the cup. So what is communion about? It's, um, you could look at it sort of historically. It's a practice that stretches back to the earliest disciples. It's continued unbroken through all times and places uh, where Christians have gathered. Um, and in communion, Christians have always uh, shared, partaken in bread and wine because Jesus, with his disciples, held up bread and held up wine and said, this is my body, this is my blood. And you think... What does that mean? <laughs> um, this is my body. Is it, is it a metaphor? Is it symbol? If it's a symbol, how is it different than metaphor? And then there's all these fancy words. Is it metonymy? Is it transubstantiation? Is it real presence? Is it trans-elementation? So on and so on. Um, this seems like splitting hairs, and Christians have argued about this and sometimes um, divided over this issue, which I think is wrong. Um, But I think it shows us something about um, communion, that it's important, it's vital. If if it's like the heartbeat of the church, it's really important that we get the rhythms right. Um, So what happens? Uh, Some of the early church fathers and reformers used this powerful image for what happens in communion. And the image, uh, they say, imagine an iron that you put in a fire. What happens when you put an iron in a fire long enough? it begins glowing red. It's changed by the presence of the fire. It takes on the properties of the fire. Heat and light starts putting off. It's charged by the fire. 
the reformers and, and, and some of the church fathers say um, that's what happens to the bread and wine. They become charged with the presence of Christ. They're still bread and wine, but they're um, somehow different. Uh, so that when we partake in the bread and wine, we really are partaking in the body and blood of Christ, shed for us, broken for us. So that uh, <laughs> these small bits of bread and, and um, small cups of wine really do become a meal that sustains our life together as a community and our life before God. And that's where the real meaning of communion lies. Uh, it's not exactly in how the, the bread and the wine are said to be the body and blood of Christ. The real meaning of communion lies in what it does to us and in, in how it makes us the church. Um, imagine that iron in the fire again. If that's what happens to bread and wine, it's also what happens to us. This community becomes a beautiful and broken body of Christ. Ordinary as we are, we become a place where the Spirit of God dwells and brings great depth into our lives together and into the world. This is where the mystery of communion really is. This is where we're, ex <laughs> where we're suspended over the extraordinary depth of our lives with each other and with God. That communion is a place where we become one with Christ, one with one another, one body, the body of Christ. Uh, when we take communion together, something happens, and that's where the Spirit of God is at work. Um, if, if we're the iron and, and Christ is the fire, the Spirit is the heat and light uh, that connects us, the union between us and Christ. Um, one Eastern, contemporary Eastern theologian says, the church is what she is by becoming again and again what she will be. Uh, in communion, for just a moment, we become, as a community, what we will be. We become united with Christ, each one of us incorporated as members of his body, all of us, the whole church, uh, not only here in this building now, but the church stretched out through time and spread out through the world. All of us become the one body of Christ together. Um, we're united in our, our diversity, and we're unique and diverse in our unity. Um, in the words of, of St. Paul, uh, all of us, Jews and Gentiles, enslaved people and free people, were made to drink of one spirit. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Uh, nobody really knows what is happening at communion. Uh, there's theories about, about what's going on, but um, it's hard to understand the depths. Um, it's hard. We're, we're grasping at mystery when we talk about communion. Um, I think there might be some analogy uh, to dreaming. Uh, nobody really knows exactly why we dream. Uh, there's lots of theories, but what we do know is that without enough deep sleep and without dreaming for a long enough period of time, you'll go crazy and die. <laughs> I think that's what communion is for the church. We don't totally know how it works, um, but we know that without it, we'll go, I, you know. <laughs> I, I just want to say one more thing. Uh, why is it that God makes communion the heartbeat of the church? 
Why is it this meal that God makes such a vital element of what it means to be Christian, what it means to be church? In the Acts 2 passage we heard this morning, the the Holy Spirit falls on the disciples at Pentecost. It fell on all the disciples of Jesus, people who spoke different languages, people who were from different cultural backgrounds, people who were rich and people who were poor, people who had actually every reason not to associate with each other and not to like each other. Um, The difference between Christian community and church is that in church you'll be with people you don't like. And that's really important. Um, A pastor in Queens, New York, I know of, um, his church has people from over 60 different nations. And he's quipped from time to time that any time there's some global conflict, there will be a smaller scale version of it in his church. So what is powerful enough to bring people together who do not like each other um, And to make them into something more, to make them into something beautiful, even if for now it's something broken. It's the only thing that's powerful enough to do it. It's the body of Christ broken for us. It's the blood of Christ shed for us. It's the Holy Spirit that flowed out of the pierced side of Christ who makes us the broken and beautiful body of Christ here and now. Thanks be to God.